UN and UNCTAD have been calling for a recapitalization of these banks because the demand has grown, but the size of these banks relative to how important they were, say, in the 60s, has shrunk dramatically. Hello, this is the weekly Tradecast podcast brought to you by UNCTAD, the UN's trade and development body. I'm Sarah Thomas. We're exploring how major events are shaping trade and development and how that affects billions of people around the world. In early September, leaders from the world's wealthiest countries meet in India for the G20 summit. Debt and development are high on the agenda. So this week, we're looking at the role multilateral organizations can play in making funding more available and more sustainable. With inflation and borrowing costs running high, Debt distress is a reality for many developing countries. At the same time, they face the challenges of climate change and green energy transition. Multilateral development banks provide vital funding to countries in need, but critics say financial conditions imposed by the lenders can keep debt burdens heavy and cut into spending on education, the environment, and other development goals. Should these multilateral lenders be reformed? And is there enough money and urgency to help countries drowning in debt. Well, joining me now to find out more is Penelope Hawkins, Senior Economist at UNCTAD's Debt and Development Finance Branch. She's worked in the public and private sectors and likes freshwater swimming, yoga and walking her dog. Well, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sarah. Penelope. So tell me, what are these institutions and how does it work when multilateral lenders deal with countries seeking financial support? Well, these multilateral development banks play a very crucial role. They are, of course, banks, which means what the funding they have, they can leverage so that they can actually create more loans, just like any bank. But these have been given the mandate to work in both regional and global contexts. So, for example, the World Bank is a multilateral development bank, the African Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, all of these have often a, a regional focus where they are intent on trying to create financing for often very large infrastructure projects that countries couldn't perhaps fund themselves. And How have the realities and challenges for these multilateral lenders changed over the years? There are many. First of all, they've become an increasingly important source of financing, primarily because there has been a drop-off in official financing from the traditional lenders. The lenders that would officially be making loans available to developing countries that were part of the Paris Club the G7 and other countries. And then, of course, there's also been the general growth in the economy, growth in the demographics. And so more and more countries need large projects, especially to address the sustainable development goals. At the same time, of course, we've seen that these banks have not been recapitalized. So there has been a very big push, for example, by the G20 to examine, is there some way in which this capital could be more effectively used that they already have? And in that process, some experts identified that there was capacity for um, multilateral development banks to leverage their funding better. But of course, the problem is with these banks in, in that context is that they are risk averse. 
So unless they change their outlook, it's unlikely to deliver all the goods we need. And that's why the UN and UNCTAD have been calling for also a recapitalization of these banks because the demand has grown, but the recapitalization and the size of these banks relative to how important they were, say, in the 60s, has shrunk dramatically. Can these multilateral lenders actually deal with this flood of demand for funding then? So where is the money going to come from? Well, this is the issue that we are very concerned about. There is this massive demand, some possible solutions. For example, the special drawing rights, that special issue that occurred in the COVID era with the view of trying to expand the access that all countries who are members of the IMF had to international liquidity. Now, we know that the way that special drawing rights issuance works is that it works according to your shareholding and your membership within the IMF. And so some of the wealthier countries ended up with the larger share of that. They don't particularly need that. And so there's been this call for a re-channeling of those resources into different ways. The IMF has set up, for example, a Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Some countries with these excess reserves have also um, channeled them through the, the Poverty and, and Growth Trust. And so we've seen this sort of push towards saying, how could these funds be re-leveraged? There's also an initiative by the African Development Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank who are um, trying to push for them as possible hosts of the special drawing right reserves so that they can leverage them. So there are, there are some solutions on the ground, but I think the, the real issue is that we need to find more funds so that these um, banks can be better equipped to deal with these demands. One possible source going forward is to look at, for example, the very many climate funds that exist. There are over 90 climate funds, and they are funds, not banks. So they don't have the capacity to leverage. But if some of that funding could be grouped and leveraged through these multilateral development banks, that could, in fact, create some multiple of those funding. So we need to be more creative in thinking about how they can address these demands. So what will the consequences be if reforms don't happen and the G20 countries can't agree on reducing debt burdens? We're saying that right now, where countries in Africa are spending 18% and more of their exports in order to service their debt, that we already have a development crisis underway. We see this in terms of the expenditure available to deal with health and education. And in African countries, on average, more is being spent on just the interest, not the repayment of the debt, but just the interest expenditure than on health and education. So we're saying that unless we can find a way to galvanize new finance that's cheaper and longer term for these countries, we will see a regression on the sustainable development goals. And we know that in the same way that households um, around Europe and elsewhere in 
in this inflationary context where interest rates are high, it's very difficult to service their own household debt, we see that they are moving away from um, environmentally sound products because they're more expensive. We're going to see also a regression on climate transition expenditure, and that's bad for all of us. If debt relief does happen, what guarantees are there that countries will spend more on education, the environment and other development goals? We can see that there is definitely a relationship between fiscal space and spending on these important social outcomes. But of course, unless a, a country has a green industrial strategy that is moving towards those plans, there is no guarantee. And of course, we do know that countries need to be held accountable by their populations. But without that relief, there is simply no possibility. Mm. And so we have to span that gap between what is impossible and what can be encouraged and motivated by the international and domestic community. Well, thank you very much, Penelope. Let's leave it there for today. That was Penelope Hawkins, who was this week's guest. Tune in to the Weekly Tradecast next week and every week for more insights on the most pressing issues around the world of trade and development. There's even more on our website, unctad.org. I'm Sarah Toms in Geneva. Goodbye for now.